This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. I'll be reading a well-known story that John Muir wrote about his travels in Alaska, and one of the parts involves a small dog who follows him onto a glacier trip and quite an adventure they have. I'll be reading from sierraclub.org, which has extensive writings of John Muir. I don't think there's anything they don't have. They have all the revised pieces, all the original pieces. It's a great place to go if you're interested in John Muir. John Muir, and that's spelled M-U-I-R, was born in 1838 in Scotland. Quoting from Mike Mossman's article about John Muir, called Reveling in the Wisconsin Frontier, from the Passenger Pigeon, the Journal of the Wisconsin Society for Ornithology. In 1849, at the age of 11, Muir emigrated from Scotland with his family, full of anticipation from the accounts of Wilson, Audubon, and others, of a new world where there would be, quote, no more grammar, but boundless woods full of mysterious good things, trees full of sugar growing in ground full of gold, hawks, eagles, passenger pigeons filling the sky, millions of birds' nests, and no gamekeepers to stop us in all the happy wild land, unquote. They settled among the virgin savanna-like oak openings of Marquette County, four to five miles from the nearest neighbor, beside what Muir's father called Fountain Lake, now Ennis Lake. They later moved to a second tract six miles to the southeast and established their Hickory Hill Farm, which still stands today. And that's a little bit of Mike Mossman's article in The Passenger Pigeon. Go to my programs 23 and 24 if you want to hear more of that article. It's just wonderful. You can find all the archives at wdrt.org under podcast archives. The foundation of Muir's life was here in Wisconsin. Muir wandered more widely from Wisconsin in 1863 when he went to Ontario to study the plants and landscapes there. And then the world was his oyster. And we're so lucky that he wrote all about his life and all about his travels. And now, on to Alaska in 1880. This is called Stikine, John Muir's adventure with a dog in a glacier. I set off early the morning of August 30th before anyone else in camp had stirred, not waiting for breakfast, but only eating a piece of bread. I had intended getting a cup of coffee, but a wild storm was blowing and calling, and I could not wait running out against the rain-laden gale and turning to catch my breath, I saw that the minister's little dog had left his bed in the tent and was coming boring through the storm, evidently determined to follow me. I told him to go back, that such a day as this had nothing for him. Go back, I shouted, and get your breakfast. But he simply stood with his head down, and when I began to urge my way again, looking around, I saw he was still following me. So I at last told him to come on if he must, and gave him a piece of bread I had in my pocket. Instead of falling, the rain mixed with misty shreds of clouds was flying in level sheets, and the wind was roaring as I had never heard wind roar before. Over the icy levels and over the woods, on the mountains, 
Over the jagged rocks and spires and chasms of the glacier, it boomed and moaned and roared, filling the fjord in even gray structureless gloom, inspiring and awful. I first struggled up in the face of the blast to the east end of the ice wall, where a patch of forest had been carried away by the glacier when it was advancing. I noticed a few stumps well out on the moraine flat, showing that its present bare, raw condition was not the condition of 50 or 100 years ago. In front of this part of the glacier, there is a small moraine lake about half a mile in length, around the margin of which are a considerable number of trees standing knee-deep and, of course, dead. This also is a result of the recent advance of the ice. Pushing through this ragged edge of the woods on the left margin of the glacier, the storm seemed to increase in violence so that it was difficult to draw breath in facing it. Therefore, I took shelter back of a tree to enjoy it and await, hoping that it would at last somewhat abate. Here the glacier, descending over an abrupt rock, falls forward in grand cascades while a stream swollen by the rain was now a torrent, wind, rain, ice torrent, and water torrent in one grand symphony. At length the storm seemed to abate somewhat, and I took off my heavy rubber boots with which I had waded the glacial streams on the flat and laid them with my overcoat on a log, which I might mind them on my way back, knowing I would be drenched anyhow and firmly tied my mountain shoes, tightened my belt, shouldered my ice axe, and thus free and ready for rough work, pushed on, regardless as possible of mere rain, making my way up a steep granite slope, its projecting polished bosses encumbered here and there by boulders and the ground and bruised ruins of the ragged edge of the forest that had been uprooted by the glacier during its recent advance, I traced the side of the glacier for two or three miles, finding everywhere evidence of its having encroached on the woods, which here run back along its edge for fifteen or twenty miles. Under the projecting edge of this vast ice river, I could see down beneath it to a depth of fifty feet or so in some places where logs and branches were being crushed to pulp, some of it almost fine enough for paper, though most of it stringy and coarse. After thus tracing the margin of the glacier for three or four miles, I chopped steps and climbed to the top, and as far as the eye could reach, the nearly level glacier stretched indefinitely away in the gray cloudy sky, a prairie of ice. The wind was now almost moderate, though rain continued to fall, which I did not mind, but a tendency to mist in the dropping, draggled clouds made me hesitate about attempting to cross to the opposite shore. Although the distance was only six or seven miles, no traces at this rhyme could be seen of the mountains on the other side, and in case the sky should grow darker, as it seemed inclined to do, I feared that when I got out of sight of land, and perhaps into a maze of crevices, I might find difficulty in winning a way back. Lingering a while and sauntering about in sight of the shore, I found this eastern side of the glacier remarkably free from large crevices. Nearly all I met were so narrow I could step across them almost anywhere, 
while the few wide ones were easily avoided by going up or down along their sides to where they narrowed. The dismal cloud ceiling showed rifts here and there, and, thus encouraged, I struck out for the west shore, aiming to strike it five or six miles above the front wall, cautiously taking compass bearings at short intervals to enable me to find my way back, should the weather darken again with mist or rain or snow. The structure lines of the glacier itself were, however, my main guide. All went well. I came to a deeply furrowed section about two miles in width where I had to zigzag in long, tedious tacks and make narrow doublings, tracing the edges of wide longitudinal furrows and chasms until I could find a bridge connecting their sides, oftentimes making the direct distance ten times over. The walking was good of its kind. However, in my dint of patient doubling and axe work on dangerous places, I gained the opposite shore in about three hours, the width of the glacier at this point being about seven miles. Occasionally, while making my way, the clouds lifted a little, revealing a few bald, rough mountains sunk to the throat to the broad icy sea, which encompassed them on all sides, sweeping on forever and forever as we counted time, wearing them away, giving them the shape they are destined to take when in the fullness of time they shall be parts of new landscapes. Ere I lost sight of the east side mountains, those on the west came in sight, so that holding my course was easy, and though making haste I halted for a moment to gaze down into the beautiful pure blue crevices and to drink at the lovely blue wells, the most beautiful of all nature's water basins, or at the rills and streams outspread over the Iceland prairie, never ceasing to admire their lovely color and music as they glided and swirled in their blue crystal channels and potholes and the rumbling of the moulins or mills where streams poured into blue-walled pits of unknown depth, some of them as regularly circular as if bored with augers. Interesting, too, were the cascades over blue cliffs where streams fell into crevices or slid almost noiselessly down slopes, so smooth and frictionless their motion was concealed. The round or oval wells, however, from one to ten feet wide and from one to twenty or thirty feet deep, were perhaps the most beautiful of all, the water so pure as to be almost invisible. My widest views did not probably exceed fifteen miles, the rain and mist making distances seem greater. On reaching the farther shore and tracing it a few miles northward, I found a large portion of the glacier current sweeping out westward in a bold and beautiful curve around the shoulder of a mountain, as if going direct to the open sea, leaving the main trunk it breaks into a magnificent uproar of pinnacles and spires and upheaving, splashing, wave-shaped masses, a crystal cataract incomparably greater and wilder than a score of Niagara's. Tracing its channel three or four miles, I found that it fell into a lake, which it fills with bergs. The front of this branch of the glacier is about three miles wide. I first took the lake to be the head of an arm of the sea, but going down to its shore and tasting it, I found it fresh and by my aneroid perhaps less than a hundred feet above sea level. 
It is probably separated from the sea only by a moraine dam. I had not time to go around its shores, as it was now near five o'clock, and I was about fifteen miles from camp, and I had to make haste to recross the glacier before dark, which would come on about eight o'clock. I therefore made haste up to the main glacier in shaping my course by compass and the structure lines of the ice, set off from the land out on to the grand crystal prairie again. All was so silent and so concentred, owing to the low, dragging mist. The beauty close about me was all the more keenly felt, though tinged with a dim sense of danger, as if coming events were casting shadows. I was soon out of sight of land, and the evening dusk that on cloudy days precedes the real night gloom came stealing on, and only ice was in sight, and the only sounds, save the low rumbling of the mills and rattle of falling stones at long intervals, were the low, terribly earnest moanings of the wind or distant waterfalls coming through the thickening gloom. After two hours of hard work, I came to a maze of crevices of appalling depth and width, which could not be passed, apparently, either up or down. I traced them with firm nerve, developed by the danger, making wide jumps, poising cautiously on dizzy edges after cutting footholds, making wide crevasses at a grand leap, at once frightful and expiring. Many a mile was thus traveled, mostly up and down the glacier, making but little real headway, running much of the time as the danger of having to pass the night on the ice became more and more imminent. This I could do, though with the weather and my rain-soaked condition it would be trying at best. In treading the mazes of this crevice section, I had frequently to cross bridges that were only knife edges for twenty or thirty feet, cutting off the sharp tops and leaving them flat so that little Stikeen could follow me. These I had to straddle, cutting off the top as I progressed and hitching gradually ahead like a boy riding a rail fence. All this time the little dog followed me bravely, never hesitating on the brink of any crevice that I had jumped. But now that it was becoming dark and the crevices became more troublesome, he followed close at my heels instead of scampering far and wide where the ice was at all smooth, as he had in the forenoon. No land was now in sight. The mist fell lower and darker and snow began to fly. I could not see far enough up and down the glacier to judge how best to work out the bewildering labyrinth and how hard I tried while there was yet hope of reaching camp that night a hope which was fast growing dim like the sky. After dark on such ground to keep from freezing, I could only jump up and down until morning on a piece of flat ice between the crevices, dance to the bonding music of the winds and waters, and as I was already tired and hungry, I would be in bad condition for such ice work. Many times I was put to my mettle, but with a firm, braced nerve all the more unflinching, as the dangers thickened, I worked out of the terrible ice web, and with blood fairly up, Stikeen and I ran over common danger without fatigue. Our very hardest trial was in getting across the very last of the sliver bridges. After examining the first of the two widest crevices, I followed its edge half a mile or so up and down, and discovered that its narrowest point was about eight feet wide, which was the limit of what I was able to jump. 
Moreover, the side I was on, that is the west side, was about a foot higher than the other, and I feared that in case I should be stopped by a still wider impassable crevice ahead, that I would barely be able to take back that jump from its lower side. The ice beyond, however, as far as I could see it, looked temptingly smooth. Therefore, after carefully making a socket on my foot on the rounded brink, I jumped, but found that I had nothing to spare, and more than ever dreaded having to retrace my way. Little Stickeen jumped this, however, without apparently taking a second look at it, and we ran ahead joyfully over smooth level ice, hoping we were now leaving all danger behind us. But hardly had we gone a hundred or two yards, when to our dismay we found ourselves on the very widest of all the longitudinal crevices we had yet encountered. It was about forty feet wide. I ran anxiously up the side of it northward, eagerly hoping that I could get around its head, but my worst fears were realized when at a distance of about a mile or less it ran into the crevice that I had just drummed. I then ran down the edge for a mile or more below the point where I had first met it and found that its lower end also united with the crevice I had just jumped, showing dismally that we are on an island two or three hundred yards wide and about two miles long, and the only way of escape from this island was by turning back and jumping again that crevice which I dreaded, or venturing ahead across the giant crevice by the very worst of the sliver bridges I had ever seen. It was so badly weathered and melted down that it formed a knife edge and extended across from side to side in a low, drooping curve like that made by a loose rope attached at each end at the same height. But the worst difficulty was that the ends of the down-curving sliver were attached to the sides at a depth of about eight or ten feet below the surface of the glacier. Getting down to the end of the bridge, and then after crossing it, getting up the other side, seemed hardly possible. However, I decided to dare the dangers of the fearful sliver rather than to attempt to retrace my steps. Accordingly, I dug a low groove in the rounded edge for my knees to rest in, and leaning over, began to cut a narrow foothold on the steep, smooth side. When I was doing this, Stikin came up behind me, pushed his head over my shoulder, looked into the crevices and along the narrow knife edge, then turned and looked in my face, muttering and whining as if trying to say, surely you're not going down there. And I said, yes, Stikin, this is the only way. He then began to cry and ran wildly along the rim of the crevice, searching for a better way. Then, returning baffled, of course, he came behind me and lay down and cried louder and louder. After getting down one step, I cautiously stooped and cut another and another in succession until I reached the point where the sliver was attached to the wall. There, cautiously balancing, I chipped down the up-curved end of the bridge until I had formed a small level platform about a foot wide. Then, bending forward, got astride of the end of the sliver, steadied myself with my knees, then cut off the top of the sliver, hitching myself forward an inch or two at a time, leaving it about four inches wide for a stickeen. 
arrived at the farther end of the sliver, which was about 75 feet long, I chipped another little platform on its up-curved end, cautiously rose to my feet, and with infinite pains cut narrow notch steps and finger holds in the wall and finally got safely across. All this dreadful time, poor little Stikeen was crying as if his heart was broken, and when I called to him, as reassuring a voice as I could muster, he only cried the louder, as if trying to say that he never, never could get down there. The only time that the brave little fellow appeared to know what danger was. After going away as if I was leaving him, he still howled and cried without venturing to try to follow me. Returning to the edge of the crevice, I told him that I must go and that he could come if he only tried. And finally, in despair, he hushed his cries, slid his little feet slowly down into my footsteps out on the big sliver, walked slowly and cautiously along the sliver as if holding his breath while the snow was falling and the wind was moaning and threatening to blow him off. When he arrived at the foot of the slope below me, I was kneeling on the brink, ready to assist him in case he should be unable to reach the top. He looked up along the row of notched steps I had made as if fixing them in his mind, and then with a nervous spring he whizzed up and passed me out onto the level ice and ran and cried and barked and rolled about fairly hysterical in the sudden revulsion from the depth of despair to triumphant joy. I tried to catch him and pet him and tell him how good and brave he was, but he would not be caught. He ran round and round, swirling like autumn leaves in an eddy, lay down and rolled head over heels. I told him we had still far to go and that we must now stop all nonsense and get off the ice before dark. I knew by the ice lines that every step was now taking me nearer the shore and soon it came in sight. The headland four or five miles back from the front covered with spruce trees loomed faintly but surely through the mist and light fall of snow not more than two miles away. The ice now proved good all the way across and we reached the lateral moraine just at dusk. Then with trembling limbs, now that the danger was over, we staggered and stumbled down the bouldery edge of the glacier and got over the dangerous rocks by the cascades while yet a faint light lingered. We were safe, and then, too, came limp weariness, such as no ordinary work ever produces, however hard it may be. Wearily, we stumbled down through the woods, over logs and brush and roots, and devil's clubs pricking us at every faint, blundering tumble. At last, we got out on the smooth mud slope, with only a mile of slow but sure dragging of weary limbs to camp. The Indians had been firing guns to guide me and had a fine supper and fire ready, though fearing they would be compelled to seek us in the morning, a care not often applied to me. Stikeen and I were too tired to eat much and, strange to say, too tired to sleep, both of us springing up in the night again and again, fancied we were still on that dreadful ice bridge in the shadow of death. Nevertheless, we arose next morning in newness of life. Never before had rocks and ice and trees seemed so beautiful and wonderful. Even the cold, biting rainstorm that was blowing seemed full of loving kindness, wonderful compensation 
for all that we had endured, and we sailed down the bay through the gray driving rain, rejoicing. And that's the end of that story. I have to add here a description of the dog that's at the beginning of the longer version of the tale I just told. This dog needs to be described better than what I just read. They were waiting for Muir's companion, the Reverend S.H. Young, and at last he came aboard followed by a little black dog that immediately made himself at home by curling up in a hollow among the baggage. I like dogs, but this one seemed so small and worthless that I objected to his going and asked the missionary why he was taking him. Such a little helpless creature will only be in the way, I said. You'd better pass him up to the Indian boys on the wharf to be taken home to play with the children. This trip is not likely to be good for toy dogs. The poor silly thing will be in the rain and snow for weeks or months and will require care like a baby. But his master assured me that he would be no trouble at all, that he was a perfect wonder of a dog, could endure cold and hunger like a bear, swim like a seal, and was wondrous wise and cunning, and so on, making out a list of virtues to show he might be the most interesting member of the party. Nobody could hope to unravel the lines of his ancestry in all the wonderfully mixed and varied dog tribe. I never saw any creature very much like him, though in some of his sly, soft, gliding motions and gestures, he brought the fox to mind. He was short-legged and bunch-bodied, and his hair, though smooth, was long and silky and slightly waved, so that when the wind was at his back it ruffled, making him look shaggy. At first sight, his only noticeable feature was his fine tail, which was about as airy and shady as a squirrel's, and was carried curling forward almost to his nose. On closer inspection, you might notice his thin, sensitive ears and sharp eyes with cunning tan spots above them. Mr. Young told me that when the little fellow was a pup about the size of a wood rat, he was presented to his wife by an Irish prospector at Sitka, and that on his arrival at Fort Wrangell, he was adopted with enthusiasm by the Stickeen Indians as a sort of new good luck totem, was named Stickeen for the tribe and became a universal favorite, petted, protected, and admired wherever he went and regarded as a mysterious fountain of wisdom. So there's more lovely parts of this dog story. Do look more into John Muir's writing, full of adventure and wonder. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you for listening.